For over a decade, I shopped and worked at my local comic shop. One of the best parts about hanging out there was comparing notes on what I was reading with folks who shared my passion for comics. My comic shop is gone now, but we can still hold on to the magic of that in-store discussion. This is My Comic Shop Book Club. Welcome to My Comic Shop Book Club. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Our reading selection for this episode is Batman Hush by Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee. And joining me to discuss is my buddy from our old comic shop, Tom Darby. How's it going, everybody? Welcome, I sir. Got my, I, got, I got my new edition. Ah, very nice. Which uh, is Because I can't find my old one. That's why. I couldn't find it. Like, when I was going through the, uh, the getting rid of all my comic stuff, the trade must have vanished. And uh, when you gave me the call, I was like, yeah, I have it somewhere. But then I, I didn't. So I had to, like, you know, Amazon Prime it, you know, uh, relatively recently. And uh, I got the new edition here from the, with, with, the, with the new DC logo and the, uh, the Batman and Hush Two-Face type cover. Oh, right on. Well, I'm sorry that you had to rebuy it, uh, but I, I appreciate you doing that. And is that a soft cover or hard cover? It's a soft cover. Soft cover. Nice cover, though. Do you like it? I like the one that you showed better. That 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 promo cover for the series that was on the posters. Right. That was that was really awesome. It took us more of the characters. Yes. You know, and this is just like you know a quick Jim Lee five second sketch that he did for the cover. So. All right. So. I know that Batman Hush is not the most daring book club selection choice. I mean, it's generally considered a fan favorite, uh, not not a very controversial choice. The series premiere of my comic shop book club was All-Star Batman and Robin, the Boy Wonder. So, uh, you know, that that's in a different category. But I figured, like, this would be fun because it is a fan fra- favorite generally. People seem to like it. And I figured, you know, this would be a great way to, to get people to check out the podcast and uh, I've been meaning to reread this for a really long time because I read it monthly as it was coming out. I reread the entire thing when it was done. And then I might have done one, maybe two rereads in the years that followed, but it's been well over a decade, I think, uh, since I've read this. And so I wanted to revisit it. And I guess I've always been curious, like, because you look at almost any list of the top Batman stories and Hush is always on there. And I guess I've always been curious to go back because it's like, well, is that position earned or or is the story a little bit overrated uh so i was curious to go back and and read it again and i appreciate you uh coming along on this ride with me you know we have a lot to unpack but i was hoping if you could just share like your big picture like what's your hot take on hush fan not a fan what do you where do you fall on hush um well with hush i think that it's it's gotten a lot of um praise because it's the return of jim lee to comics you know, if you're if you're a comics books per if you're a comics person, you know the name Jim Lee. You know the fact that he's very very selective in what he does. He doesn't do interior pages anymore. Wildcats number thirteen was the last fully drawn uh, interior page that he's done, and that was what nineteen, you know, ninety something. And this is Hush was two thousand one, I believe, right? When when Batman six hundred eight came out, it was, that's when the first issue was two thousand two to two thousand three. Okay, so 2002, yeah. not, not super far off. But again, still still him coming back to monthly books and doing interiors. No one does interiors anymore. Every way, it's all about the cover artists these days. You know, these companies pay out tons of money for that, for covers, but no one does interiors. 
So a big, big part of this book's critical acclaim was Jim Lee to comics. He could have drawn, you know, anything else. It still would have garnered that kind of attention. Um, but in terms of Hush, like big picture things, I think that like that Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee, and don't forget Scott Williams and Alex Sinclair. Yeah, for sure. You know, those, if you've seen Hush Unwrapped, you see the work that Scott Williams puts into that book. All right. Um, so let's be fair here with that. Um, but overall, um, these two, the, the team does a really good job bringing in a lot of characters into 12 issues. And I feel that like each of these characters got their appropriate spotlight. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, Huntress. She's probably in it for maybe two pages if you add up all of her panels. And I think that her... Her, um, her scenes in the book really showcase what she's all about. You know, Superman's in it for a few ish, for a few panels and a few pages. What, what he does in the book is really important to the story. So I feel everyone's um, contributions, meaning like, you know, the character's contributions into, into Batman's predicament is, is extremely well done and well-crafted. And I think that Jeff Loeb is a great writer in that he can make a script around the artist's strengths. You know, he did the same thing with Joe Manarera when they were doing the Ultimates. Um, and again, Joe Manarera, not doing interior pages. Um, these guys, you know, they, they don't do that kind of work. So I feel that like every character in the book from the Batman universe um, certainly got their, got their time to shine. And I certainly appreciated that. And I'm not a Batman fan. The reason why I bought the book, because Jim Lee, that, 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 that's my honest opinion with this. And that's actually one of the main reasons why I wanted to have you on for this episode, because you are one of the biggest Jim Lee fans I know. And, you know, you and I kind of came to Hush really with different motivations because, you know, funny enough, you know, I mean, I got into comics in the in the early 90s, but again, I only read the Superman books for many, many years. And it was in the early 2000s where I started uh, really expanding and delving into other characters. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, like I missed the boat on Jim Lee. It's like I knew who he was, obviously, but I really hadn't read much, if anything, of what he had done. So like when they announced that Jim Lee was was going to be doing the interior art on this, it's like I knew it was a big deal, but it didn't necessarily resonate all that much with me. I was more excited for Jeff Loeb because I liked uh, Long Halloween and Dark Victory, and I loved the Superman work that he was doing at the time. So like that was really more of the draw for me. Now, obviously, once I started seeing preview pages and stuff like that, I was like, wow, like this is, <laughs> this is amazing. And I really, you know, I mean, I can't stress enough, like how much I loved uh, the art in the story. But yeah, I mean, we definitely kind of came to it from, uh, you know, from different perspectives. Um, so when, when did you get into Jim Lee? Was it with the, the X-Men stuff in the, in the early nineties? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. In my opinion, he created the X-Men. Um, the marketing that he did for, for the X-Men, the reason why we have the trading cards, the action figures, the pogs, um, you know, the TV show is because of him. Um, he certainly, and X-Men number one is the only book that sold a million, that sold over a million copies. No book today has sold even close to a million copies. If you sell 1500, you know, 15,000, you know, you're, you're doing fine. Well, that's nowhere near a million, you know? So, so Jim Lee, like revitalizing the X-Men and 
bringing them to the status that everyone knows today is because of that. And again, all of the merchandising, all of the, um, the marketing for his run, it was phenomenal. Like, you know, the reason why Toy Biz even exists probably is because of like the X-Men toys. Um, and again, all those characters came in the Jim Lee era. So this man's reach and ripple effect is, is, is astounding. And you had said this before, um, we're coming at this from very, very different angles. I don't think too much of writers, you know, I'm, I'm more of an artist person. You don't have, you don't have a comic if you don't have good art. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I don't know that I would say it's a debate that we had, but like, yeah, you and I definitely have always looked for different things out of comics. And I mean, again, I, I obviously appreciate what an artist can bring and I appreciate the fact that it is a visual medium. But yeah, like where you and I have differed is, you know, I know you tend to follow artists, right? Like you'll pick up a book if you like the artist. Um, whereas for me, it's like, yeah, I more follow writers and I'm more likely to overlook art that I don't like if it's a writer I like and a story that I'm interested in, right? Um, but again, that being said, like I definitely, you know, appreciate everything an artist can bring. And like, especially with a story like this, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't think it's out of line to say that his art is really, um, you know, probably the, the, the biggest factor in terms of why, certainly why this story got the attention that it did at the time and why it's, um, you know, been remembered so fondly. You know, when, when, uh, when they announced that he was going to do, I know this is going back almost 20 years, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it was crazy. But like when they announced that he was doing Batman, I know you said like, you're not a big Batman fan. Was it, was it kind of like a, a little, were you feeling a little mixed about it? Cause you're like, Hey, it's great that Jim Lee's coming back, but it's like, Oh, why does it have to be Batman? Or were you, were you like, fully, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I was like, I was, why have they, why does why it be DC? Why not be Batman? All that. Yeah. Like, you know, this, this is not, this is not my cup of tea. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the most I appreciate Batman is the Tim Burton movies. Um, like the soldier is totally kicking in. I, I love all that stuff. So my, my love for Batman comes from Michael Keaton. Okay. Not necessarily like, you know, um, like Kelly Jones's Batman or, you know, Neil Adams, Batman. Um, yeah. So the only reason why I like, he's on my radar or to even acknowledge them is because of like the movies. Um, but again, you know, like, you know, I, mean, I think you're asking this question later on, but like what actually got me to buy the book? Um, Cause again, you know, it, it, it's a, you know, it, it's certainly a fine line. You know, why would I buy a book of a character that I don't really care for? Why would you do that? Um, so I'm sure you're going to ask that down the line. So I can kind of like, you know, jump ahead a little bit with that. But again, it, it certainly came down to, okay, um, what can you do with, with, uh, with a franchise that I'm relatively interested in on a very, very like, you know, weak side with that. Right. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, you know, the other thing that I was, I was doing the math and you helped me out on this. Uh, but so this came out 2002, 2003. So I was in high school and I was working part-time at our old comic shop, the late alternate realities. Uh, you were a customer there. We had probably met at that point, but like you and I didn't really become buddies until like a few years later when I was like early in college. So like 2005, right? Yeah, probably around there. So like you and I would not have been talking about this as it was coming out. I mean, I know obviously I like right. we, like we touched on it obviously, you know, years later, but like we, this wasn't something that you and I would have been discussing month to month. Right. Definitely not. Yeah. It, it doesn't ring a bell. I think the only 
folks that I talked about this was was with was with maybe um, like some of the guys from like my old high school. Gotcha. And not necessarily like you know the uh, the uh, the AR crew. Gotcha. Yeah. And so that's, you know, one of the other reasons why I wanted to have you on for this, because this podcast is my comic shop book club. Right. And, you know, we would always have great chats about what we were reading. And so, I, you know, the idea with this podcast is to, to try to like capture a little bit of that on, on the podcast. And I think it's especially fitting since you and I didn't really get to have these chats the first time around. Uh, and the other. Yeah, the other, now. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is like. 30 years. Uh, yeah. 30 years more. <laughs> Better late than years. never. 20 years later. <laughs> but and that's the other thing, like when I think about Hush. Uh, it really conjures a very strong connection to alternate realities for me because I just, I remember those issues coming out. I remember grabbing them at the store. Uh, again, I was working there and I had uh, that the tag for Anthony's pick where I would select the comics that I liked. And I was so into Hush that I made it my pick for the duration of oh, its yeah? run. Yeah, which, you know, it was good. And I feel like, and you know, I'll get to this in a minute, but I really feel like it held up well. And I, I very much enjoyed my reread last night, but uh, yeah, did it deserve to be my pick of, of the week for a year? I don't know if it was that good, but I was so into it at the time. And then the last thing is there are, are a few, there are three that I can think of over all the years of, of being at alternate realities, three instances where I was so excited to read an issue that I read it in the car immediately. Like as soon as I left the store, read it in the car, identity crisis, number seven, why the last man, number 60, the final issue and Batman 619, the end of, of hush. And uh, I'll be honest, I was a bit underwhelmed when I read the final issue of Hush in the car. And that kind of, as much as I still generally looked at the story favorably, um, it, it always kind of sort of had that asterisk next to it. Like, I didn't really feel like they stuck the landing. And, and, and so that was one of the other reasons why I wanted to go back and read it now uh, with, with fresh eyes and, and see how it held up. Um, but so those are all the reasons why, like, I wanted to do this as an episode and, and why I wanted to, to have you on uh, for it. Uh, so, so you read it monthly as it was coming out or were you just kind of like, actually that is a valid question, I guess. Cause like, were you actually reading it or were you just kind of like checking out the art as it was coming out? No, I, I was actually, I was actually reading the issue, gotcha. uh, month to month and I was buying it. I think I, I think I was buying it at comic book heaven, um, during that time. So I, I was shopping at, at Bishop's, um, uh, when this was coming in, I was buying it, I was buying it month to month. Um, and I actually did read it, um, like most of the books that I buy, I don't necessarily read because, you know, the stories are mediocre. Um, but the art certainly makes it, you know, worth my, worth my money and worth the, worth the time to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly read, you know, these, um, I, I certainly read it cover to cover. Um, didn't, didn't skip on that. Gotcha. So let me lay out my three key takeaways from, uh, from my reread. Um, one thing that really stood out, and I'm going to say this first because I feel like this doesn't often get said, or at least I haven't seen it uh, or heard it said about Hush a ton. I feel like there's a very timeless quality to it. I mean, it came out almost 20 years ago, but I feel like it reads very fresh. It doesn't really have, uh, you know, there's nothing that really dates it in a significant way. Uh, and, you know, I recently did on, on my Superman podcast, I did two episodes on the Jeff Loeb era of the Superman books. And not like those are so dated, but I mean, one of the first major storylines is Y2K. So, it's, you know, there's stuff like that. And, and just kind of the style of some of the Superman titles at the time, you know, still kind of felt a little bit like the 90s era that they were just coming out of. Right. 
But this book, and I think it's a testament to both the writing and, and the art for sure, uh, that it it reads so fresh. It's like, I feel like if you handed this to someone who had no idea what it was and you were like, hey, like this just came out, I feel like they'd be like, oh, right on. Like, you know, I don't feel like there's anything that really uh, dates it. And I don't feel like you get a ton of that um, with, you know, a lot of, you know, um, you know, a lot of uh, storylines like this. So I thought that was impressive. I liked that sort of like that timeless aspect to it, you know? I agree. Uh, there's nothing in there that shows that this is 2002. Nothing in there. The technology has always been the same. Nothing in the headlines like it is freaking today, you know, polluted by that. Um, and like the character outfits. Yeah. Everything. Everything about it, you could say it's from 1990 or 2030, and you wouldn't be able to tell. Unless if you're like, you know, some sort of mind reader or something like that. Um, but yeah, there's nothing in there. And, and, and the language that they use doesn't indicate a time period. This could be the 1930s for all we know. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, so I was so impressed uh, by that. And I, you know, I don't think that's an accident. I think this was certainly the intention, you know, to tell a story that would really stand the test of time and not be, uh, you know, rooted so deeply in a, in a particular period of time. Uh, and even just in terms of, of, the DC continuity. I mean, other than the fact that, you know, we get references to Lex being president and, you know, yeah. Bruce owning the daily planet, both things that came out of the Jeff Loeb run on the Superman titles at the time. That's it. And those are so mine. Like it really, um, it really has this timeless aspect to it, which I think is really cool. Uh, the second takeaway, and this, you know, has, has often been said, so I'm not uh, really breaking any new ground here. And you touched on it uh, just a moment ago. It is, I mean, really a great, encapsulation of Batman and the entire Bat universe. Uh, I mean, it, you Absolutely. really, you really get this tour through his Rose Gallery and his allies, uh, you know, as he's contending with this unknown adversary who's putting him through this gauntlet, you know, while he's navigating a new potential romantic relationship with Catwoman. It's like, uh, you know, you really just get to see him interact with this entire cast of characters. It's a great, uh, you know, uh, encapsulation of the Bat universe. And, it's funny. It's like the cat. There's almost like this meta aspect to it. I feel like where the the gauntlet that Hush puts Batman through is essentially like what a Bat fan's wish list might be, right? Like he has, you know, the moment where he where he can, contemplates killing the Joker. There's the battle with Superman. It's like the romance with Catwoman. It's like all the things that you might want to see in a Batman story. Boom! Here you go. Yeah, in twelve issues, and none of it is drawn out. If anything, you want you want you want a little bit more. Um, and as someone doesn't really know too much about like the ins and outs of like the Bat universe, um, I didn't notice that stuff. Um, but obviously, I, I I did know you know for the most part. I know who the Scarecrow is. I know that he's Jonathan Crane. I know the backstories of the other characters. Um, yeah, so everyone everyone gets there gets their get their share of time you know dick grayson is in there provides really good advice tim drake you know who is like one of the best robins out there except for except for dick that's a big compliment you know coming from a guy that doesn't care about dc too much i'll go on record for that um and and like his his uh and catwoman too like she was she was probably one of the best characters in that whole book you know i don't care about batman i think um catwoman um, Tim and Dick Grayson really sold the show, and Owen Huntress too. Even yeah. though she was in like a few, only a few of the scenes, but I think that his uh, 
his um his allies really really stepped it up. Yes, you know it definitely was on Batman, but you know like I, I really appreciated his supporting cast a lot more with this. Yeah, and you know going back to uh you know our comic shop right like we both worked at alternate realities for a long time and like. You know, there are certain titles that if someone comes in and they're like, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, getting into comics or, or getting into Batman, you know, there are certain titles that you can hand them and you could say like, here, this is, this will get you there. And, you know, I think for, you know, what was one of the things that was so impressive about this book is how quickly it emerged as one of those evergreen titles that you could hand to someone. Because it's like before this and since then, right? Like what are the usual go-tos like year one or Dark Knight Returns, maybe Long Halloween, you know, like a self-contained story that will, you know, really be a satisfying read and introduce you to the character. And I feel like this, I mean, really earned its spot on that list like pretty quickly too. I mean, um, it was one of those books like we always had in stock at the store, always. We made sure of that. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, if I was getting recommendations, I mean, I think this is the only, this is the only full Batman story that I've read ever. Never read Long Halloween. Don't really care for the art again. Um, year one, again, doesn't, doesn't really do it for me, but you know, definitely Hush was my go-to if someone was looking for like a Batman story. I said, read this book. It's good. It looks good. It doesn't look weird or people having like weird diseases on their faces because a lot of that art looks like they have you know boils on their faces um and you know it, it's well written and it looks good yeah it's worth it's, it's worth your 30 bucks for sure absolutely and you know this came up when uh in the premiere episode of this podcast when we did all-star batman and robin the boy wonder and uh i, I said this then and I, it's a connection point here which is you know the all-star line the intention behind that or the stated intention was you know, top creators on DC's biggest characters telling iconic stories that really capture the essence of those characters, right? Creating the types of stories like we were just describing, something that you could hand to someone and be like, hey, this is Batman, this is Superman, this is Wonder Woman, right? And, you know, I think they achieved that with All-Star Superman. I mean, that's certainly the type of book you can hand to someone if they're like, hey, I'm kind of curious about Superman. All-Star Batman and Robin, <laughs> you know. It's a complete story. Well, not even a complete story, exactly. And, you know, it was you a, couldn't even give it to anybody. No. And it's just a very different take on the character. But I feel like what, what Loeb and Lee were able to do with this, uh, I mean, honestly, you could lift this out and slap the all-star label on it. And it would, you know, it, it would perfectly capture, I think, what the line was trying to do. Uh, really, um, again, just like capturing the essence of the character, telling like a quintessential timeless story uh, that that I think, you know, is interesting, really does work on two levels because you can have someone like yourself who, you know, is is not really into Batman and doesn't have a ton of experience with the character other than, like, the movies, right? Or someone like myself who had been reading Batman. And that's the other funny thing because, like, I started with No Man's Land. So I only started, like, a few years before Hush. It's not like I was reading Batman for, you know, 20 years. I only had a couple of years under my belt, but uh, coming out of, of No Man's Land, uh, we had... Uh, the primary uh, writers at the time were Greg Rucka and Ed Brubaker. And I loved like what they were doing on the books. Uh, so the idea that, that uh, you know, we were getting a shakeup in creative teams, like I wasn't initially, I, I don't know. I think I kind of, I had some mixed feelings about that because I liked what was going on in the books at the time. But that being said, again, I was excited for Loeb uh, to tell this story. And the other thing, I know you know this, um, but they mentioned it in, in uh, Jim Lee's afterward to the, in, in the, I'm assuming it's in the new new edition too, and this was in a lot of interviews and articles and stuff that 
uh, DC wanted this to be a um, like a mini series or an original graphic novel. Like they were very wary about having Jim Lee do the art and hit the deadlines on a monthly book. But he was adamant that he's like, no, like I want it to be the flagship mainstream in continuity Batman book. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Yeah. And, 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 and you know this, and so does everyone else that, you know, knows anything about comics. The guy had like, what, a year lead in time. And I think if you're going to, if you're going to pursue that idea of top creators working on these books, you got to give them the time because a lot of these guys live this rock star mentality where it's like, you know, I don't want to, you know, do an interior page. They're, they're fucking boring to draw. I know they don't get paid a lot of money for them either. You know, uh, me knowing a lot of like artists with that. Um, but if you want like the top tier talent, um, you got to give them the time. And it was great that they gave that they, that Jim Lee had the time to do it and actually make the deadline. Because as you know, with all star, the book's not even done. Yeah, I know. So a decade later, more than a decade later, still, later, still yeah. unfinished. No, you're right. I mean, it always, it always made so much sense to me how, how they handled uh, the the deadlines. The fact that he had the lead time that he did, and you know, I I always wish that we would see more of that. Especially, there's so many instances. I mean, you know, recently, you know, with Doomsday Clock. I mean, that book took years took like two years to put out 12 issues, which, you know, compared to some other things, isn't really that bad, but it's the sort of thing it's like, you know, it, it, even though it dealt with DC continuity, it kind of existed in its own timeline and everything. And so it's sort of like, you could have just waited, uh, you know, until you had enough issues in the can. It's like, you, you know, oftentimes you get the sense that, you know, the publisher's like rushing out stuff, right? Cause they want to make that big splash, uh, for a certain time of year or something like that. But uh, you know, yeah, if you then run into delays and things like that, I think it takes away from it. So, uh, yeah, I love the way they handled it. And it was cool that, yeah, the book hit monthly as, as it was intended. Well, imagine that. Imagine if Batman didn't ship for three months. Yeah. No, for, yeah. you know, that's like, that's like saying, Hey, you know, um, you're not, you're not, you're not going to work for three months. You know, you're not getting a paycheck, you know, imagine if that ever happened. Yeah. So if this is going to be part of the, um, part of the, uh, you know, of the, of the, of the legacy numbering, it, it would have to have been done that way or else, you know, again, you would have had like Batman 608 and then five years later, Batman 609, like, what are we going to do? Like one half, one quarter, one fifth, you know, what the fuck? Um, so, um, yeah, if, if you were going to do it in this way, where it's going to be 608, 609, 610 has to come monthly, right? Again, as you said, publishers, we don't want to keep those numbers cranking out. Granted, they're not going to say anything to Jim Lee anyway. You know, no publishers are like, oh, Jim Lee, you have to hurry up here. Right. Your, your job is not going to be existing in the next morning if you, if you ever do that, I believe. Um, but in any case, yeah, that, that book had to come out monthly. And the only way to do that is to give the man his vacation time and do that. Exactly. Uh, and then my last takeaway, which I'll just, I'll mention briefly, then we'll take a quick commercial break and then we'll come back to. But my last takeaway is, Again, I think it's a brilliant tour through the Bat universe. It's a great examination of really all of his key relationships with his enemies and his allies. It's a magnificent peek into his mind and and the way the mind of the Batman works. Uh, you know, again, it's a wonderful encapsulation of the character and the world. Uh, so on that level, I think it succeeds magnificently. And that I think that's why it's on all of those best of lists and, and deservedly so. As a detective story or as a mystery story, 
I think it leaves a little bit to be desired. And that's always been the main issue that I think I had with it. Reading that final reveal in the in the in part 12 in the car outside alternate realities and being like, uh, OK, uh, you know, it it I guess it it read a little bit better for me this time, you know, knowing what to expect and kind of looking out for certain things along the way. But yeah, as a mystery story, I think that's where the story, uh, you know, kind of loses the most the most points. Um, and let's let's unpack that in a second. But let's just do a real quick uh, 30 second commercial break. We'll be right back. The Hive Comics and Games is an oasis of nerd fun and events in the heart of Odessa, Texas. Whether it's comic book superhero stories or role-playing in a dungeon, The Hive is where to be. Come tap your mana and face off against the top Magic the Gathering players in West Texas. Hive carries a majority of new comic titles each Wednesday and has all of your favorite titles in their back issue section. Follow them on Facebook at The Hive Comics and on Instagram at The Hive Comic Shop. All right, so picking up uh, where we left off, uh, yeah. So the you know the the big the twin reveals, uh, you know, a that Tommy Elliot is is Hush is the man behind the bandages, and b that the Riddler is the ultimate mastermind of this whole plot, the one pulling all the strings. Uh, how did how did that work or or not work for you? What did you think? Yeah, just like you said, very very underwhelming. You know, when I when I saw that that was the Riddler, I was like, what the fuck is this? Really? Really? You're going to pick the Riddler out of, like, I was thinking Jim Carrey, like, <laughs> being, like, the mastermind behind this. And I was like, you shitting me? Like, this is the biggest goof in the world, you know? Aside from, like, you know, Danny DeVito Penguin being, like, so dumb looking. Um, it, it just, like, it, it almost, like, it, it, well, it did. It pissed me off. I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, yeah, so, like, when, when, I, when I heard the reveal and I saw it, I was like, oh, like it, it, it does leave something to be desired because it, you know, it does so well up until that last, those last few pages. And then it, and then it, just, it, just, it just drops. That's what I feel like. It, it, it's, bringing, it's bringing you all the way up and then it cuts the cord for you and you fall, you, you plummet. I hear you. Uh, again, like I, that was really my initial reaction when I read it. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm not a mystery writer expert. But I think that for a mystery to really work, I think that the payoff has to be something that, uh, that is a surprise. I don't think, you know, it shouldn't be something that's obvious, right? Like you want there to be some twists and turns, right? You don't want to be able to easily predict the ending. However, at the same time, I do think it should be the sort of thing where everything kind of tracks and there are enough breadcrumbs where you could potentially figure it out. Again, it shouldn't be easy to, but it should be such that you could figure it out and such that you get to the end and you're like, oh, I want to go back and I want to read it again or I want to watch it again and everything's going to line up and make sense. And you don't really get that with this. Um, and, don't. and that was really, when I was rereading it for last night, knowing that I was going to talk to you about it, that was what I kept thinking. I was like, okay, like, let me give this the benefit of the doubt. Like, let me see, maybe there are things along the way that I'm going to notice now. And I'm like, oh, like they were really planting the seeds for this. You know, <laughs> Riddler, seeds. Riddler only appears once in the story prior yeah. to that, uh, where he rips off, you know, a, 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 an armored car full of money. And, 
they there is a little bit of a of a of a hint sort of where Batman is thinking about you know we hear Batman's uh you know inner monologue and he's commenting on the Riddler and he's like you know he seems like kind of a has been like I thought he would have retired by now you know because and he and he also notes he's like oh it's surprising that my unknown adversary like hasn't taught him any new tricks right because that's the whole thing throughout the story like Killer Croc um, kidnaps this kid and holds him for ransom very out of character Catwoman steals the ransom money out of character for her. Uh, you know, there are a lot of instances and Batman's noticing that, right? And that's cool, right? Because it shows how well he knows his enemies and how he puts the pieces together. And so he makes that comment about the Riddler. He's like, oh, like it's, you know, kind of interesting that, you know, this this unseen force like hasn't, you know, hasn't, uh, you know, uh, enlisted Riddler in any way. So, you know, going back, it's like, oh, okay, like that, you know, I, I guess kind of makes sense. Uh, but yeah, that's really it. And even that's pretty thin. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, yeah, like the only that that would be the only shred of of evidence that you could ever connect back to that. But that's so vague. So for you to pick that up it is extremely unlikely. Yeah. And then as for Hush himself, like, I mean, here's the thing, right? So Hush ends up being Tommy Elliot, who I think every reader along the way assumed Hush would be Tommy Elliot. It's like a new villain shows up at the same time as this previously unseen friend from Bruce's childhood reemerges. Right. It's like, well, okay, it's probably him. They give us that misdirect halfway through where it looks like the Joker kills Tommy Elliot. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, like, okay, maybe it's not what we thought. So I'll give them that. But I think the, and I want to get your your thoughts on the Tommy Elliot reveal. I feel like the the problem with the Tommy Elliot reveal is that it came after like three red herrings, three big misdirects, Harvey Dent, Jason Todd, and Harold the mechanic, like three people who it looks like, oh, that's Hush. And maybe with the exception of Harold, but the other two felt like so much more interesting that it almost felt like a letdown, like the Jason Todd thing. Imagine if that That had, I mean, imagine if that That had been the payoff to the story, right? You know, so let me ask you this Yeah, yeah. as a, as a, as a more of a DC person, was Jason Todd back as Red Hood before this or no? No. So that's... This is the first time he was back since he was dead. Yeah. Okay. So that would have been freaking amazing. Like when I saw that, I was like, oh, wow, Jason Todd, like, you know, like being this new, like this new revitalized character, almost Bucky and Winter Soldier, you know, which is like a character that everyone writes off as, as, as lame becomes this amazing character. So, and, you know, I think that if, 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 if Jason Todd was hush, that would have been a lot more, you know, um, you know, thought provoking and more like you, you get more of a feeling with that as opposed to like the Riddler, you know, pulling the strings or Tom Yellett. I didn't know who Tom Elliott was. I had no, I had no idea. Yeah. So as a person who's reading this, you know, you're giving me no backstory here. So Jeff Loeb, you know, context. As a, as a social studies slash English teacher, context. And that's, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's where, you know, the Tommy Elliott thing kind of fell a little flat. Because, uh, you know, the idea of like a reformed, uh, you know, fixed Two-Face being behind it, you know, which it looks like for a second there, it's like, wow, like that's that's really interesting. But then, yeah, even more so that, you know, the Jason Todd bit. And, you know, I guess when you consider the legacy of Hush, the storyline, uh, this very much paved the way for Jason Todd to return for real. And in fact, it was only a couple stories later where it actually happened when Judd Winnick did the Under the Hood storyline. And did you ever read that? No, but like, you know, um, Red Hood sounds like a really cool character. 
and the way and the way that he's drawn his costume is cool and i want to get into that too the costumes yeah yeah for sure you know because you know there, there was a lot of tweaking with the costumes yeah let's so let's do that in a second let me just button this up yeah so uh the so again, I do think with Jason Todd, oh, so anyway, with the legacy, uh, so yeah, I think this very much paved the way for them to bring back Jason Todd for real. And in that Winnick story, yeah. it's been a while since I read it. That'll probably be another book club episode at some point, but um, they do retcon Hush slightly where, you know, in Hush, it turns out that Clayface was impersonating Jason Todd the whole time. And yep. under the hood, the retcon is that the actual Jason Todd was actually in cahoots with Riddler and Hush and that the real Jason Todd was actually in the cemetery briefly and then switched places with Clayface. Oh. So there is that retcon, but which, you know, I, I, we never I, saw that though, right? No, you never see that in Hush. That was not the intention with Hush. But when they did under the hood, right. it was like, oh, he actually was there. But yeah, I really think the story would have packed such a punch. And it's I mean, the benefit of hindsight, right? But seeing how well right. Jason Todd's return was ultimately well was ultimately received right like with under the hood and all that stuff it's like yeah i think this story would have would have really packed even more of a punch if it had been jason todd and then the last thing you know with tommy elliott you know you get the flashbacks between him and bruce and and i, I think they're effective but they still don't really give you enough i don't think where you're like really invested in tommy elliott but again going back to the legacy of this i know you, i'm sure you i don't think you would have read this either but paul dini did a lot of work with hush on uh, towards the end of his detective comics and then Streets of Gotham. He did like Heart of Hush, House of Hush. He did a bunch of Hush stories that like really fleshed out the character and took him from essentially being a plot device in the Hush storyline and like actually made him a character. Uh, so I think that that really went a long way towards towards fleshing out who, you know, Tommy Elliott and Hush. But again, you don't get that in the original Hush story. And I think for all of those reasons, the, the payoff is a little bit like, and, and I remember at the time, like, it kind of bugged me that we never saw him unmasked fully. Right. Right. Because it, it just left it open ended. It's like, well, all right, it seems like it really is him. But what if it's not? We don't know for sure. And that always kind of bugged exactly. me. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You never see, like, the bend is coming off. You never see, like, him, like, un unwrapping it. Or even, like, Batman saying, oh, it's Tommy Elliott. Right. He does, does he ever say, you know, I know who you are? Because he keeps on saying Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. So he knows who he is. Right. I never, I never noticed if, if, if Batman referred to Hush as Tommy or even knew that he was Tommy, maybe it happened off, off screen. I'm not sure. But again, like that, that, that was certainly missing, um, yeah. from that. I think in their final confrontation, I mean, you know, Tommy talks about his motivation, uh, I don't know. If, oh yeah. Yeah. About, about his parents. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't know if in, but even then, I don't know if Bruce, you know, ever the questioning detective, I don't know if Bruce ever fully, fully buys it, you know, um, that I will say this though. I did like that reversal where you assume that Tommy Elliott's motivation is, you know, hatred towards Bruce because Thomas Wayne let Tommy's father die. Right. And that's what Bruce assumes. And that's what we assume. But the twist is that of course, uh, he wanted both of his parents to die and actually severed their breaks. And he was yeah. mad because his mother lived. And I thought that was interesting because it definitely flips the script on what you would typically <laughs> expect the villain's motivation. To I be. definitely thought a lot less of Tommy Elliot after after that. I was like, wow, that, that that's pretty messed up to want your folks to die like that. Yeah, that is dark. And again, you know, they don't give you enough, right, to even know like, well, why did he want them dead? I mean, it's just kind of painted as like Bruce, True. like Bruce, you were so lucky, you inherited all that money, and it just seems like that's the motivation. The the Paul Dini stuff like really fleshes that out a lot more. So. 
again, I think if maybe if you read these together, uh, you know, maybe that would enhance the original Hush story, kind of like having having that. But just based on what you're given in Hush itself, yeah, again, I think it does fall a little flat. Um, but yeah, let talk to me about the art. What like what stood out to you? The 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 redesigns, the scenes, the moments. Like what what uh, what'd you like? Well, I'll start with, with, with what I didn't like. All right. Um, uh, I, I don't like that 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 Ed Brubaker, Jim Lee costume for Catwoman. Um, the goggles, she was like a pilot and not like Catwoman. And most of the time, the goggles are up. And to me, that's not like a costume. I think the reason why the costume today looks like the Batman Returns costume, that's the better costume. It's it's a it's a better Catwoman costume, and like you know the the design for that I, I thought was you know like silly. It, it, it was a leather suit that had the had the whip as a belt. Um, how pragmatic is that? You know, not at all. And, and then the goggles, like, and, and the ears being like super tiny that you don't even notice them. Again, I, I think there's a reason why they made the costume look more like the Batman Returns costume. Um, and hence why um, a lot of folks, well, I mean, this, this, this is the internet crowd saying, so, you know, how much stock is in that? But, you know, the iconic look for Catwoman is the movie from 1992. You know, most people would identify with that costume um, than any other. I mean, if you say the Jim Ballant costume, you know, few people know that, that's, you know, that's the, the long black hair and the purple costume. You know, 1960s one it is very, very dated. You know, most folks today wouldn't be able to recognize that. Also, if you're like, you know, 60 years old. Um, and the other ones, I, I can't even remember. I can name the other ones, like the, uh, the like the prostitute one, like the one Frank Miller did. Right, right. You know, like that. That looks too much like a cat. That that that, that, looks, that looks, you know, in my opinion, looks a little silly. You know, with that. Um, with comics, you know, sure you want to have like the uh, the fantasy aspect where things look, you know, almost like perfect, but when it looks silly, it takes away from that, in my opinion. Um, so like, I, I think that's like, that's, that was my biggest pet peeve with, uh, with, with the costumes, what was hers. Um, because I mean, you can call it nostalgia, um, if you want, but in terms of like the look, it, it didn't, it didn't do it for me. Um, I certainly miss the yellow in Batman's symbol. Yeah. Right? Because I feel like the symbol gets lost in the costume. And they did this in the in the in the Nolan movies, right? That's a that's a black suit with like, you know, plating on top of it. You don't you don't know what's going on with that. So in the comic it's fine because it's obvious there's a gray and there's a black, right? There's the there's different colors there. So I, I was certainly like missing that aspect. Um that I wish that they would have done. But again, you know, that's, that's editorial and, and Jim Lee's decision to do, which is whatever. Um, the others, um, I think they were pretty, you know, true to, true to form, right? You know, Riddler's costume hasn't really changed too much. Uh, Superman's costume hasn't changed except for like the underwear thing, you know, you know, a few years ago. Um, I'm not sure if Huntress's costume was, was new. I'm yeah, not that sure. Was. It, it, was it new? Yeah, and they they do address that. Uh, you know, the scene where she's uh, under the influence of Scarecrow's fear toxin, and she thinks she's fighting herself. 
yep. the other one she's fighting is in her previous costume. And they do establish that uh, even Huntress was wrapped up in the hush plot that Tommy Elliot had approached her and offered her money to upgrade her costume and equipment. And yep. that's why she was... and. I guess planted her to be there to to save Bruce when he when the bat rope gets cut uh, in the first yeah. issue, right? Uh, you know that whole bit. So uh, so yeah, that was a new costume. Um, pr- you know, different than uh, what she had been sporting at the time. Yeah, I would have to say that that, that that's probably my, my favorite look for her. With that, the new you know, one, the uh, the shorts, yeah, um, and kind of like the the midriff almost, right? Um, and, and a lot of like you know like stuff for like for for packing like gadgets. And Jim Lee's a master with that, with like the buckles and the pockets, you know, to me, like if you're going out to like whoop some ass, you're going to want to have compartments to whoop some ass with, as opposed to like, you know, whatever these people are creating nowadays. Um, The Hush costume was cool. Um, You know, I, I, the the bandages, I mean, like, I'm not sure if they could have done anything with that. You know, because it is a new character. You want to keep everything a secret. You don't want to have like a blank face or like a Rorschach type thing. Right. Um, but, you know, it, 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 is what, it is what it was for a new character. Um, and, you know, I just want to jump in for a second and, and say like, uh, you know, we do have to give them credit. You know, how often is a new villain introduced who becomes a part of the rogues gallery. I mean, I feel like you typically, like we're so often seeing stories with the same classic villains who have been used like over and over and, you know, it's fine. Right. And a new writer comes on and they have, you know, a new spin on, on, on an old villain or something like that. Like, you know, it's fine. I don't object to it, but you know, it's nice when you can actually see some, some growth. And so, you know, again, on two levels, the fact that, you know, these guys were able to create a storyline that kind of earns its place in that list of evergreen titles that doesn't happen all the time. And the fact that they were able to create a villain who now has stood the test of time as well. Very cool. So, and yeah, the design I thought, yeah, it was cool. Um, yeah, I don't know what other twists they could have sort of put on it, but, and I guess, you know, to to Jim Lee's credit, it's like it's bandages and a trench coat, but like it works. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It it didn't feel like it was, you know, it it was, it was heating the story or, or, or really progressing it forward. It really was kind of like, all right, this is pretty neutral. You know, you can, you can, you know, you can get any kind of reaction out of it. Oh, I wanted to ask you, because in, uh, I think it's in the afterword that he writes, he talks about, how, Jim Lee, he talks about how, uh, like his, the way he drew Batman changed as the story went on, and he says that, like, he was actually, he wanted to go back and redraw some of those earlier pages, because again, there was so much lead time that he, he could have done that, and yeah. that Scott Williams was like, no, like, just like, leave it. He's like, you know, it's okay if you see the art evolve, like, it, this is, you know, it's an artistic medium, it doesn't have to be like a carbon copy. Did you... Right. Did you notice that at all when you were when you were reading it? Like, oh, like his style has kind of changed, or he's drawing Batman a little bit differently as the issues went um, on. Um, I don't, I don't think I did. Um, I feel that I know his his style already because I've read so many of his uh, of his issues before. So I, I really didn't didn't notice um, anything really. Well, maybe like I don't know because like there, there there's. There, there's a scene in the first issue where it's, it's a big splash page. I think he's kicking Killer Croc on the, on the ship. Yeah. And you get a nice big picture of Batman. And for some reason, I, I feel that, that, that the way he drew Batman was certainly different than how he drew Batman towards the end of the run. Yeah. Um, I can't even put my finger on it. Um, no, like, I'm looking for it like right now. Like, if I can like, try to like, find it. No, but I get uh, what you're maybe saying. Maybe it's like the cross hatching. With that, yeah, 
Yeah. And I mean, I, it's probably the sort of thing that like he notices as the artist, yeah. you know, where he's like, oh my God, it's so obvious. But like to anyone else, yeah. it's like, oh, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, certainly it's not like, it's not like, oh my God, it completely switched. But yeah, I'm sure, right. I'm sure it evolved. Like, right. You're drawing someone for the first time versus, you know, <laughs> for the hundredth time. It's like, you know, some variation. Oh, what did, what, yeah. did you like the, um, I really like these. I don't know your take. Did you like the painted uh, flashbacks with uh, Bruce and Tommy? No, I, I didn't. I didn't like, you know, um, I'm not a fan of painted art in the first place. Um, so all the Alex Ross fans out there, sorry. Like, you know, they look too look old, first of all, mm. um, like geriatrics. But yeah, paint start, like, I, I feel like there's, um, you can't capture all of the detail in there. You know, with paint, you can't like get in there and get like eyelash in there. Uh, also, if you're like blowing it up super big. Um, so I feel like, um, a lot of details are missing and that's, that's my personal preference. I like the detailed art. I like the cross hatching. I like seeing like, you know, the outlines of like the muscles. I like seeing pretty faces and not smudges, um, which painted art can certainly do. Gotcha. No, fair enough. I liked it. I liked the, I liked that it, it set those sequences apart. It's like, I agree. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted, I wouldn't have wanted 12 issues of that, but I thought it, I thought it worked well. Uh, you know, again, in terms of just those, those flashback scenes between, uh, between Bruce uh, and Tommy, anything else art wise that, that you wanted to talk about? Cause I have a few other story things that I want to circle back to, but I want to, if there's anything else art wise that you wanted to bring up. Well, we, again, we, we got to give credit to Scott Williams um, because if you see like the hush on rat that DC does it all the time with their, with their pencils only versions, you see like the X's and X's means you're shading in. Right. Um, so, you know, we, we, we got to give props to Scott Williams. We got to give props to Alex Sinclair for, 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 for killing it. And these guys are synonymous, are synonymous with, with, with Jim Lee. You know, you don't see an X, you don't see a Jim Lee book without Scott Williams or Alex Sinclair attached to it. So we got to give credit to those guys. And uh, the world of the inker, unfortunately, is, is, is a thing of the past. A lot of pencils are, are, pencil, are inking their own issues, and a lot of pencils are being shot, uh, sorry, a lot of colors are being shot from the pencils. Mm. So that, that middle ground where the inker was basically be able to make a, make a living it is almost gone now. So if you can imagine, like, a, a rough layout and that being shot um, uh, for, for the colors, you wouldn't have the same quality of a book. Yeah, no, fair point. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, the inkers sadly are often the unsung heroes. I mean, you know, the whole Kevin Smith bit from the nineties from chasing Amy, where, you know, they, he calls them tracers. And, you know, I think that that mentality, you know, uh, you know, existed to an extent. And, and like you said, now the fact that, you know, they're not always even utilized, uh, and it's true. It's like when you look at the unwrapped, you you do see the difference. And then I know this is the example that you and I always went to. But remember that Heroes, that Heroes uh, hardcover, you know, Heroes, the NBC show, and then DC put yeah, out yeah. like a comic book adaptation or something yep. like that. And there was a cover that I think Jim Lee drew. And then was it Alex Ross who painted over it? Or it was something like that. I remember, um, I, I, I know what you're talking about. Because it definitely, yeah. either way, it definitely was the case that Scott Williams was not inking him. I think it was painted over, and I want to say it was Alex Ross, but, but either way, like it was just the pencils and I think painted over and it was like, you know, not to take anything away from Jim Lee, but like it really, it did not look great. It, it made you appreciate no. Scott Williams in the equation for definitely. sure. 
for sure. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. You know, certainly anchors can, can certainly, you know, make a book or they can certainly break a book. You know, I've, I've spoken to artists where anchors have destroyed their books. Um, Ron, Ron Lynn has the initiative of Silver Surfer and his anchor has erased images and redrawn them his own. And he's seen them. Oh, wow. I didn't draw this. So, you know, it is a double-edged sword, like with almost everything in life. But, um, you know, like the the art team is is a team. It's just the penciler, it's the anchor, and it's the colorist. You know, any one of those guys, if they fuck up along the way, it can really, you know, leave an impression on the book, negative or positive. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, you know, just circling back to, you know, to, to the story. And again, I know we really haven't given up like a plot summary, but I, I think people probably <laughs> people know the story. I mean, if you uh, haven't read it, you should probably read it now because yeah, yeah. You're, you're a little late. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a, a hidden gem is something that flew under the radar. Uh, you know, so I, I didn't, it's 25th I printing. So yeah, I didn't feel we needed a, a plot summary, but again, you know, the things that stood out to me story-wise, I loved, like I said before, seeing how Bruce's detective mind works, like how quickly he picks up on the fact that his old enemies are behaving in new and different and more dangerous ways. Like Harley Quinn, uh, you know, making that big scene at the opera. It's like, wow, that was out of character for her. Like he's so quick to pick up on, oh, this is out of character for my enemies. He knows them so well. Um, and I loved generally how we got inside Bruce's head. So like when I did those digging for kryptonite episodes about the Loeb Superman run, uh, the thing that I kept coming back to was he made great use of the supporting cast. The supporting cast narrated almost every issue of Loeb's Superman run, primarily Lois, but Jimmy and Perry and, and Ma and Pollock, they all got a turn. And it was really cool because like it was a great way to see the way all of these people around Clark and Superman viewed him. And it gave new insight into the character. But there was only one issue, I think, that was actually from Clark's perspective, where it was Clark narrating. Uh, and so what I thought was cool with this was that for all 12 issues, like you get inside Bruce's head. And, uh, you know, again, it was really cool to see the way he views his his enemies and allies. Um, and, and on the allies front, uh, you know, the way he way he speaks about uh, Dick and Tim uh, you really see the, you know, again, the deep bond, you know, between those guys and the pride that he has for them and the differences too. I think that's what's so cool about the story is like, it really lays out all of the characters and their dynamics, right? Like the idea with Dick that it's like, you know, he was never afraid and, and uh, he, you know, he loved the thrill of it versus Jason who really saw it as more of a game and he paid the price for it versus Tim who, you know, Tim wasn't like the other two. It wasn't like, you know, he had nowhere else to go. Like he saw it you know, Batman out. He deduced his identity. It's not a game or a thrill for him. He wants to be the world's greatest detective and he will. So like you really, yep. they, that, as he said, that all gets laid out uh, really well. And, and you get a lot of insight into all of these relationships. So like, I really, uh, you know, I really dug that uh, a lot, you know, I really, and just to kind of play out the relationships, I, I really love the, the bond between Superman and Batman. Yeah. Like when they, when they have their like, you know, heart to heart moments, it really, exemplifies those two characters. You know, Superman is, is on one end of the spectrum and, and Batman is on the other, but yet they find a way to um, like use each other's talents and character traits to better themselves and to better what they do, which is spectacular. And again, not a big Superman fan, not a big Batman fan, but as someone who can, you know, read and understand, you know, language and context, you can certainly appreciate that. I, I really enjoy those, like, 
those moments between them because, you know, they, they certainly knew a lot about each other. Um, and it really like, you know, gives you a nice little summary of their relationship in only a few pages. For sure. And, and that was that was the next thing I was going to bring up. So I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah, the Superman issue. I love that so much, obviously. I mean, Superman's my favorite character. And I have to double check the math on this. But when this issue came out, Loeb uh, was either towards the end of his Superman run or had just finished his Superman run. Like he had been on the Superman book for, for a while. Uh, and so it was cool to, you know, now have Superman guest star in the Batman book that he was writing. And this is for sure like my favorite depiction of the relationship where they are sometimes at odds and they are very different and they approach things in different ways. And as Bruce says, and he's their like, views on life is different. Yeah. And like Bruce says, he's like, you know, Clark essentially is a good person and I'm not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I appreciated that. But there's that mutual respect. And I think that's what I really love the way Loeb and in the Superman Batman series as well, the way he captured the dynamic between them. Uh, again, like they can be at odds, but there is always that that undercurrent of respect. Uh, and, and I like that a lot. And I love the bit at the end where, uh, you know, Tommy Elliott, when he had performed surgery on Bruce, he had implanted a, like a tracking device. Right. And, device. <laughs> and Bruce has Clark, you know, use his x-ray vision to find it. And he's like, use your heat vision. Burn it. And he's like, this is really going to hurt. It's like, just do it. <laughs> exactly that's it yeah exactly yeah he's like you know what and then then he's fine yeah just like Wentworth in prison break getting all those tattoos lasered off that doesn't hurt yeah that's a whole other maybe we'll do a prison break podcast at some point my goodness we spent a whole we we do we do need to I I I spoke to Sarah Wayne Callie's actually I went to one of those like you know those uh walking dead conventions oh yeah and uh so I, I I met her um and I spoke to her about prison break I was like I don't care about the walking dead I was like I won't talk about prison break so she was like, you know, nice enough to talk about prison break. So um, it, it was good to uh, to kind of reminisce about that with oh, one of the stars. Very cool. Uh, yeah, I appreciated that. No, that isn't. I like that a lot. Uh, and then just like just circling back to the to the Superman aspect of this, you know, we get the Superman Batman fight now. You know, and I've talked about this with our mutual friend uh, Ken Marion, and the the idea that this is even a question about like who would win in a fight between Superman and Batman is ridiculous. Just as it's ridiculous when I think it's ridiculous when the questions pose like, Oh, who's faster Superman or the flash It's the flash. It's his one thing. Let him be the yeah. fastest. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I thought the, I did like the way the battle played out because it did account for that. Like Bruce even says like, if Clark wanted it, like he could squish me in two seconds. Obliterate me. Right. Yeah. Uh, like one of my favorite lines from Batman v Superman, where, you know, Superman says, if I wanted it, you'd be dead already. It's like the only reason this is even a fight is because I'm allowing it to be one. But anyway, true. <laughs> um, but true. it's like, again, Can't argue with that. but you see like the, what a master strategist Batman is. And I think that's, what's so cool about that whole sequence. It's like he lures Superman to a lead lined tunnel. Uh, he's underground, so he can't fly. Uh, Bruce bluffs and says, oh, there's gas in the tunnel here. If you use your heat vision, the whole block will blow up. Uh, he uses exactly. hypersonics. And you know, who's, and you know who's, who's above us. Exactly. And uh, and he's got the kryptonite going. So it's like, you know, it, and again, shows how, you know, we, we could get to a point where there's actually a battle. Uh, but uh, yeah, all the choices that Batman makes, I think, really just illustrate, um, again, just what a brilliant mind and, and strategist uh, he is. And I also love the, uh, we didn't, let's, and I want to talk about the Batman Catwoman relationship for a second. Cause I love like that instant shorthand between Batman and Catwoman when Batman's like, you know, your part in this. And she's like, yeah, which one of them should I grab? Like they instantly know 
right? Like yeah. she's going to grab someone from the Daily Planet, uh, you know, to use as leverage over Superman. I like that yep. a lot. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Th- 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 those two should have their own, should have, should have their own book. I, th- I think they do have their own book. It's like a, it's like a black label book. They do. I, I'm not sure if that's any good. You know, these writers these days, I don't, I don't trust what they, I don't trust what they do. It's uh Tom King. He's got a Batman Catwoman book and, uh, I, I haven't I haven't read any any of it yet, but but you know that's kind of another thing, kind of going back to the legacy of this story. It's like post crisis, uh, you know. Again, I didn't start reading Batman until No Man's Land, and I haven't really gone back and read a ton of what came before. So there might have been more, uh, you know, more storylines where there's a romance between them that I'm not aware of. But I think this was really like one of the first major steps forward in their Definitely. relationship. And now you still see Definitely. it almost 20 years later, like still being paid off. So again, like I think blue balls with the marriage thing with the, yeah, with the marriage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, and that's Good job editorial, but that's kind of the, uh, you know, the, I love the way, you know, the, the Riddler thing all right, was a letdown, but what I love about this story is that it doesn't end there, right? It ends oh. on, uh, you know, Bruce pulling the plug on this budding relationship with Catwoman because he can't be sure if the the what's happening between them is real or if, or if they had been manipulated in some way, right? And it's this really sad moment. And I actually, that's why I, I, as much as I think the mystery could have been handled a little bit better, I give it somewhat of a pass because I think, you know, this story really works as like a character study of, of Batman and you see him put through you know, this, this gauntlet of adversaries and ghosts from his past and, and, and the battle with Superman and all that stuff. And it ends with the matter of the heart. Um, so I, I really did like that a lot. Yeah. Just, just to kind of reiterate what, what, what Ritroni always says about like relationships and, and, and friendship, like, you know, for me, like the main story, I kind of put that on hold because I care about the relationships. I want to see the inner work is between, you know, a person and somebody else that, that, that to me is going to speak more volumes. So to sort of see him talk about his relationship with with his friends and with Alfred, of course, Alfred, you know, what the hell, you know, like he's, he's the biggest part of the whole story. That's completely unsung. Um, so for the relationships between him and his, him and his, him and his allies and him and his enemies it, it is, is probably one of the better parts of the story because you see all of that and you see it in a new way. If you are, if you're, if you're an old reader, if you're a new reader like me, um, you can certainly appreciate what's 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 happening, and, and it's really great to see him, you know, Batman and his and his allies work together, you know, and it's very very carefully laid out where it's there's no time being wasted. Um, there's not a lot of like things that are silly. It, it, it's very very personal, and, and 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 people like stuff that resonates personally with them. Well said, and I think that is, yeah, I don't know how often that always gets cited when people are talking about Hush, but it is a very personal story, and I think that's why, you know, people tend to uh, tend to connect with it, and this idea of, like, all of the allies in particular, it's very true, and Catwoman has, a, I think she says it a couple of times, like, you know, for such a loner, you've you've accumulated quite a, yeah. quite a group, there's a... there's a great moment uh, towards the end of the Grant Morrison Batman run where, where Batman says... You know, the first truth of, of the Batman, the saving grace, is I was never alone. And he talks about how, like, from the beginning, right, like, Alfred was always there. And then, like, little by little, he's added people into his world. Um, and so, yeah, you really see that that play off here. Um, again, I know I keep coming back to this idea, but I really do give them credit for, like, creating this story that has that just 
rose the way it did uh, to earn its place among these these other titles. Because the other thing too that's interesting when you think about like most of the Batman stories that at the shop we would typically recommend, we would always have on stock. Uh, you know, Year One and Dark Knight Returns and Long Halloween stories that were very firmly set within either the beginning or the end of Batman's career, right? Yep. And here you have one that's like dead center in the middle, <laughs> right? Where he has all of these that you can around. place anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Practically. Yeah. Uh, so no, very, uh, yeah, there was a lot of really, uh, really cool, uh, really interesting stuff, um, you know, in this story for sure, you know? Um, I, You're making me appreciate it a lot more as we're talking about it now because I was certainly like, you know, moved when I was reading it and I, I appreciate the relationships. Now that we're talking at it, talking about it, it allowed, um, I, I'm really starting to like, you know, feel something towards these characters again. You know, which is like, it's been dead inside of me for like 20 years. Yeah. No, right on. No, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad that the conversation has that effect for me, you know, for me too. Um, oh, there's one other thing that I was going to say that, uh, just, that just slipped my mind. Oh, the Joker issue. You know, again, when you, when you go back to like what a fan would want to see, like in a Batman story, you know, again, I think a fight with Superman is probably in there. A little romance with Catwoman would be in there. And, you know, examining like one of the greatest questions or greatest debates is like, why doesn't Batman kill Joker? And he's gets very close to that point. Uh, and then of course, you know, certainly have- deserving of it. Cause because it gives you the rundown of everyone that he's, that he's killed. Yeah. And there's countless other people that 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 he's that lives that have been ruined by him if that was me bang you're done yeah and you know he comes very close and then you know jim gordon is the one to talk him down and jim gordon just a few years ago they the situation was flipped when joker killed uh, gordon's wife at the end of no man's land um and i think you know it's funny we were you know obviously we talk about joker that leads to jason todd i hadn't even read death in the family uh, you know, the story where Jason died. And, and I only knew about Jason, like really in the broadest of terms. You know, again, I'd only been reading right. Batman a couple of years, right? It was like, okay, there was the Robin who died. But they did such a good job, I think, especially in that Joker issue, like giving you the backstory that when that Jason Todd reveal happened, I was I was like, whoa. You know, and they so they earned that even within even those yeah, pages. Um, definitely. So, so yeah, I think like with, whether it's the Joker issue or the Superman issue or, or anything else, it's like, um, it really does a great job of, of boiling down like the basic the individual characters and the dynamic between them, uh, which I think is really cool. Uh, I just wanted to talk for a minute uh, before we, before we sign off about like the legacy of this. And, you know, I mentioned those Paul Dini stories. They're great. Like for anyone who hasn't read them, uh, I, I really encourage you to, and we'll probably do a book club on that in, in the future. Uh, there's an animated adaptation that I did not watch, but uh, I'll probably get to at some point. I'm curious. I'm curious to see what, if anything, they change, right? Because I feel like they would try to put some kind of spin on it so that people don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and it came out a couple of years ago, so I'm like, I'm way behind the curve on it. But there is an animated movie. I, you didn't see it, right? No, I saw I saw it on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. For, uh, when, when I was trying to, to buy the book. Yeah. I was going to ask if you wanted to watch it, and, but I was like, I don't think he wants to watch an animated movie. I wasn't even sure if you would want to talk about the comic, to be honest, because I know you're not like as into comics these days. I'm like, I don't know, but I was like, yeah, let me ask him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, like, you know, comic books as of this second, like, I, I have absolutely no desire to support any of these companies. Um, what's fortunate is that, like, I, I have a whole plethora of, of books to read from an era that I respected a lot more than I respect that, that I respect today. Gotcha. Um, you know, I, I have like, again, go back to the Jim Lee library of, of, of comics. I have all the X-Men, I have all the Wildcats, all the image stuff. Um, 
So that's what I've been doing. I've been, I've been, I've been actually rebuying um, older issues um, as reading copies. All my stuff is is packed away into stores and stuff that I did keep. Um, and I'm buying reading copies of the of these things. So you know, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily like just go away. Like you know, like like your, your desire to to read comics or to look at or look at them or collect them doesn't really go away. It's it's more like what what do you like? Yeah. And that could be from all over the place. So, um, so yeah, definitely, definitely still, still reminiscing in the past, but you know, I'm, I'm totally fine with, uh, with doing that. Cool. And, you know, honestly, like that's sort of my, uh, my guiding principle, like with this podcast series, it's like, I'm picking stuff that I want to either, you know, check off my list because I've, I've never read it and I've always been meaning to, or go back to my favorite stories like this one. Or like with the all-star Batman and Robin episode, you know, kind of take another look at something and, and see if I might find something different this time around. Uh, the last thing is uh, they did, the only live action adaptation was on Batwoman, the CW Batwoman series. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, Gabriel Mann, uh, who played uh, Nolan on the Emily Van Camp Revenge series. Right. Uh, he played Tommy Elliott. I watched, I only okay. watched, I only watched Batwoman through Crisis, through the Crisis crossover. So... Uh, I saw him as Tommy Elliott, but it was after Crisis that he became Hush. And then, spoiler alert, he ultimately uh, has plastic surgery to look like Bruce Wayne, so he switched out actors. Oh. Uh, so I didn't actually get to see the, the full-on Hush, but I did see the Tommy Elliott character. Yeah, it was cool to see him you know, brought to life uh, for the first time. You know? Now, what, what didn't, like, when, when Batman died, right, when Grim Morrison killed Batman, um, did Tommy Elliott come back as Bruce Wayne? In, in the comics? That's a good, you know what? I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's, uh, it's been a while since I read. Somebody like played that Bruce Wayne is back, but, but they, but they gave him plastic surgery. I'm not sure if that was Tommy Elliott who did that. I mean, it would be, it would be good. Yeah. You know, I, if Tommy Elliott could like manipulate Wayne Enterprises like that, he has a whole arsenal to, to do whatever he wants if, if he did that. But I, I, I did, I, again, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm incorrect or not. Um, but, um, Something, something is making a correlation. Yeah, he did. I'm almost positive that, yeah, he does eventually undergo plastic surgery to look like Bruce in the comics. And I think it is during that period of time. I'd have to double check. But uh, but yeah, you know, and so that's the thing. Like, there was a lot that was done with, with Hush in the, in the future. And you know what? Like, in, in Loeb's defense, it's like, you know, maybe that was part of the intention. Like, maybe, you know, he could have kind of layered more, you know, onto the character. But maybe he kind of figured, like, well, I'm, I'm putting out a new toy that others can kind of add to, you know? So, yeah. uh, and, and I think it certainly worked, uh, in that respect. Uh, listen, man, this has been a lot of fun, uh, you know, revisiting this story and I really thank you so Absolutely. much. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to say b before we sign off? Um, you know, just to kind of like, you know, cause you, you were talking about, um, like venturing into new things. You should probably, you know, read, read, read a book that you wouldn't read before. Yeah. You know, like move away from the Marvel and DC move away from the walking dead, you know, like, the, um, like, like the bigger, like, you know, lamer image books or whatever. And, 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 you know, expand your horizons a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, that's certainly the, the long-term plan for this, right. Is to, you know, again, there's a lot that's been on my list that I want to work through, but it's like, yeah, this is a great opportunity to try something that I, that I might not have otherwise. So for sure, I, I, I agree totally. Um, you do a Witchblade, you know, I mean, a lot of Michael Turner fans out there that were, that weren't fans of him when he was, you know, drawing Witchblade. And now all of a sudden we got the bandwagon folks. Um, when he did DC, oh, I love Michael Turner. No, you didn't. 
Hmm. Yeah, fair point. So, all right, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, well, listen, Tom, thank you so much. This was really a lot of fun. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening or watching. We'll be back with an all new episode in two weeks. And until then, remember, they're all imaginary stories. My Comic Shop Book Club is a Flat Squirrel production. Art by Kristen San Gregorio, music by Basic Printer. If you like what you heard, be sure to check out my other podcasts, Digging for Kryptonite and My Comic Shop History. Sign up for exclusive content, including the official book club companion podcast at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato and watch my documentary film, My Comic Shop Country, out now on Apple TV and Amazon. <laughs>